Welcome back to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Cressy, and this is episode 147. There are about 75 days left until the start of spring training, so it's an exciting time at both Cressy Sports Performance Facilities as everyone ramps up for the big day when they report. But it's also a really good time of reflection as we look back on some of the adaptations that we've had with our athletes, what's worked, what hasn't. It's also a really good time for dialogue with the athletes as they ask questions about how to attack their training, both during spring training as well as during the season. Um, combine this with some of the inquiries that we get from listeners and some of the, the reader uh, you know, questions that I'll get emailed to me. We've come up with a pretty good Q&A for this month. I think you'll find that there's something for everyone in this, whether you're a coach, an athlete, or a parent. So hopefully you enjoy this and we look forward to your feedback. This episode is brought to you by Proteus Motion. Proteus has developed the only practical and accurate way to quickly measure physical strength and speed across the entire body. Power is plane specific and most of human movement is divided into three dimensions, but strength and power has typically been measured using one dimensional movements performed in a straight line, things like the squat and the bench press. Measuring more than that can require numerous pieces of lab grade equipment and hours of time. Proteus Insight softwares give trainers the ability to focus precisely on what, where, why, and how to personalize training programs. In as little as four minutes, Proteus software guides users through full-body assessments that test all planes of movement and delivers unprecedented data on precisely what areas of the body need improvement and where an athlete's movement falls on the force velocity curve. Set demographic filters to compare an individual to someone like them using Proteus's proprietary database of millions of reps. Get insights and actionable and understandable recommendations to work into programming. Proteus Insights software delivers the most personalized training insights in history. On a personal level, I've been a big fan of Proteus for the past few years. We have a unit in both Cressy Sports Performance Facilities, and I actually helped to develop the Cressy Power Test for rotational athletes. The information we've gathered from this testing has been an absolute game changer in helping us to more optimally program for our athletes. Additionally, as a training initiative, work on the Proteus has allowed us to train different points on the force velocity curve and rotational patterns in ways that medicine ball work alone could never do. Proteus is doing for full body physical strength what the x-ray and MRI have done for body imaging. It saves coaches a lot of time and headaches in their assessment of what makes an athlete successful and what qualities need to be improved to take that athlete to the next level. Learn more about this revolutionary performance testing and training solution that is an essential component of sports performance and sports medicine settings across the U.S. and Canada at www.proteusmotion.com backslash elite. You can also learn more about them by listening to episode 106 of this Elite Baseball Development Podcast. Again, that's www.proteusmotion.com backslash elite. Check it out. You won't be disappointed. For our first question, it says, I know you do a ton of assessments on baseball players, and it's hard to speak in generalities when each athlete is unique. However, are there any big principles that you try to keep in mind as you go through an assessment to guide your programming priorities? I actually think this is an awesome question um, and something that everyone really needs to, to pay close attention on is, is, you know, how do we prioritize what we're looking for in our assessment and how do we make sure that it directly relates to the programming priorities that we have? Um, and so as I thought about this more and more, um, I think it actually becomes a pretty good teaching tool. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share some of these thoughts with, with some of our staff at the facilities. Um, but I think the, you know, the big five that I uh, identified are the ones that I'm going to highlight in this answer. It's not the only five, but, you know, the five that were foremost in my mind. The first one is a concept I've, I've discussed on previous podcasts, but it's this concept of thinking upstream. 
What is something that can have the most prominent downstream effect? What's a little thing that I notice that can have big, you know, impacts across an entire athlete's, you know, adaptation? Um, and one example would be like medications. If you look at a, a health history, you know, as an example, you might sometimes see an athlete who's on Accutane. And we know that Accutane is something that's taken for acne, you know, dermato uh, dermatology condition. Um, but there are some side effects in some people that can, you know, can have significant musculoskeletal impacts and, and negatively impact their performance or cause pain. So there have been a few times over the years we've identified this in an athlete who's got a you know, chronic shoulder issue or something like that. And they've come off the medication and they've done really well. Certainly not everybody has these side effects and it's something you want to discuss with a doctor, but it just is an example of this idea of thinking upstream where we could take those players and, you know, throw them on aggressive shoulder programs and work on mobility and do soft tissue work and all these different things, overhaul their mechanics. But because it was something that was of a systemic origin, um, you know, as a medication that we had to remove from the, the situation, um, you know, it just gave us an ability to think upstream a little bit more. And the same thing may be true from an actual movement standpoint, right? If you have someone who has a, a raging, you know, anterior pelvic tilt, they have very, very um, heavy extension bias. You know, we know that if we get them just a little bit more posterior pelvic tilt, it's going to change a lot of different things in the way that they move, right? They're going to get more hip and turn rotation. We know there's some research also that shows that you get better lower trap recruitment. You're better able to posteriorly tilt the scapula if you get some posterior tilt of the pelvis. Um, impacts the way that we're able to, to drive rotation, not just through our hip, but also further up the chain through our, our thoracic spine. So it, it just opens up this world of possibilities if we can find a little bit of posterior tilt. Obviously, there's different exercises you can use to attack it. And you can get really stuck in the weeds, but that's something that has a very upstream, you know, kind of, uh, you know, angle to it. So we need to be mindful of that. The second thing I would say is, is always look for things that don't make sense. What jumps out at as being really, really strange. So as an example, um, if you see a really hypermobile individual, right, they walk in and they've got, you know, elbow hyperextension, they've got super pliable fingers, you know, they've got cold hands, which would be a sign of hypermobility. And you know, we've done a previous podcast on that. So, so dig in on it if you haven't checked it out, um, you know, and they've, you know, just got this, this insane amount of shoulder ER and IR, right? They've got a lot of total motion, but then you go to check their shoulder flexion and it's ultra limited on one side. You know, that could be a lot of different things, right? So anytime you see a hypermobile individual that's lost a significant amount of range of motion, particularly at one joint, that could be a couple of different things. First, it could be a sign of a very cemented joint, someone who's, who's developed some, you know, unfavorable bony consequences of, you know, long-term movement, you know, challenges or an acute trauma. It could be a sign of significant protective tension. It could also be a sign of someone who's been in a really bad position for a long time, right? So if you have someone who's super hypermobile and they sit in a heavy scapular depression and all they've done is deadlifts and farmer's walks and walking dumbbell lunges and tons and tons of lat pull downs and pull-ups over the years, they might be so stuck down in depression that their lats have actually adaptively shortened to that crazy malalignment over the course of time in spite of their hypermobility. So, you know, it, it just reminds us, look for things that don't make sense. Usually bodies trend in a direction across the board. So when you see one thing that jumps out at you as, as looking really, really strange, that's, that's never a, a good thing. Um, the third thing I'm always considering is, is how can I relate whatever movement impairments or proficiencies I see in an assessment 
to that individual's athletic endeavors in order to better create context and, and optimize buy-in. Um, so, you know, one example would be, you know, retroverted versus antiverted versus neutral hips, right? So we will see some athletes who have extremely, you know, retroverted hips. They just have a natural bias towards being, you know, very externally rotated through an adaptation at the, the proximal femur. Um, and it usually leads to this kind of like toe out, you know, presentation, at the other end of the spectrum, we have antivert hips. These are kids that are were kind of like W sitters um, instead of crisscross applesauce when they were kids. They have, they have tons and tons of IR bias, but very, very limited, you know, external rotation. In other words, they're not going to do well if you ask them to sumo deadlift. How you would ask these pitchers to set up against the rubber when they're pitching from the stretch might be dramatically different, right? A retroverted hip is going to feel way better with kind of like an external rotation bias. An antiverted hip actually you know, might, might show up better with an internal rotation bias on the rubber. So just figuring out a way to take your table assessments, your range of motion assessments, and actually relating them back to the way that you might actually instruct them to go through something more skill specific, um, is going to be a really, really impactful thing, both for the athlete and for your ability to, to design a high quality program. And this is really the tip of the iceberg, right? You have, you know, certain predispositions from wide versus narrow infrasternal angles in the delivery, right? Infrasternal angles that are narrow, they tend to really, you know, kind of collapse towards the open side of the pitcher with the knee they don't they don't do as good a job with like hip loading they tend to leverage rotation really really heavily you know wide isas tend to be very hingy into their hips more of like a vertical shin delivery and you know you'll see exceptions to these rules and you never want to you know completely like pigeonhole athletes based on how they present but there are certain things that you'll generally expect um, from what you see during their assessment you can kind of predict what they look like once they get on the mound and the last one I would say is like military posture, shoulder, shoulder blades that are really tugged um, back together, almost like pinched together in the back as if they're fully retracted. You know, those are athletes that are in many cases going to struggle to to get to full ball release, right? They're not going to upwardly rotate that shoulder blade up and around the rib cage. It's going to make it really hard for them to, you know, throw a glove side fastball or stay on a change up or even, you know, get to the front of a breaking ball in many cases, just because everything is pulling them back. So we always try to take, you know, whatever we see in the assessments to create context and, and optimize buy-in with respect to, to what they're doing on the field. So that's number three. You know, numbers four and five both are kind of derived from um, the Selective Functional Movement Assessment, the SFMA. Um, really, really good course. I'd always, you know, encourage folks to, to take it. And I think they do a great job of, of looking at general principles. Um, and it was one of the better courses I've taken in the last decade or so. But you know, one principle they outline is that you should always chase dysfunctional, non-painful patterns first. So, you know, just for an example, let's say someone walks in with a cranky shoulder that's super limited into internal rotation. So it's a, you know, it's a dysfunctional, painful pattern. They would call that a DP. Um, it doesn't get to where it's supposed to, and it's also painful. So if you were just going to throw caution to the wind and, and aggressively stretch that shoulder into internal rotation, more often than not, you're just going to flare things up even further. It's kind of like banging your head against the wall. Now, conversely, you could take that same individual and look and see, all right, he's got a pronounced scapular anterior tilt. He's got very limited thoracic extension and rotation. Maybe we throw a little soft tissue work on pec minor to get some posterior tilt. 
Maybe we're working some thoracic spine mobilizations to, to get them a little more extension and, and rotation. You do those things, there's a very good chance that when you go back to retest that shoulder internal rotation, it's going to be improved and pain-free. And there's actually some research to show that, you know, you mobilize someone into thoracic spine rotation, they are going to get some shoulder internal rotation. So that the message there is that sometimes the best way to get from A to B is, is through C or D. So you might have to, to kind of go out and around um, to get where you need to. So, so just always be mindful of chasing dysfunctional, non-painful patterns first. The only people that really should be uh, chasing, uh, you know, painful patterns are, are people in the orthopedic community. That may be a, a place where cortisone injection is appropriate or some kind of oral anti-inflammatory or, you know, stem cell or PRP, something like that. Uh, but that's up to, you know, to folks that are, that are trained in, you know, orthopedic diagnosis to really attack. I think what we need to do in the performance realm is, is leverage our ability to, to work on creating high quality movement in the absence of, absence of symptoms. So being mindful of that as you, as you attack an athlete's, you know, assessment and program is really important. And then the additional SFMA principle is, you know, find and address areas where passive range of motion far exceeds active range of motion. So, you know, I always use the example of, you know, there are a lot of gymnasts and dancers that retire with stress fractures in their lower backs, right? Why? Because they do tons and tons of back bends over the years. They have lots of passive range of motion, but they don't always have you know, sufficient motor control, muscular strength to stabilize those excessive ranges of motion, right? Um, so, it, you know, this is one reason why it's so important for us to to test, you know, do assessments that have both passive and active components. So if you can imagine like a straight leg raise, we have someone do a straight leg raise and they get to 45 degrees and then we, you know, we passively can take them all the way up to 90. That's, you know, 45 degrees of range of motion that they can't control. And that's, you know, probably where some hamstring strains, things like that happen. And these are, you know, prevalent all over our body. We see it in, in shoulder flexion assessments where people have full range of motion, but they can't actively tap into it. Um, I think the biggest thing that we see in a baseball population, the biggest injury re- risk uh, predisposition is a lot of passive shoulder external rotation that can't be actively picked up. So one test that I like to use with all of our athletes is we'll, we'll put them in supine and, you know, we'll go to R1 and then to R2 to measure their shoulder external rotation. Let's say somebody hops on a table and we, we have them at 125 degrees of passive shoulder external rotation, which would not be out of the ordinary, um, you know, in a pitcher. And then what we'll do is actually flip them over and we'll look at a prone external rotation and we'll see how much of that shoulder ER they can tap into actively. And you'll often see athletes that, like I said, 125 degrees of shoulder ER and only 80 degrees actively. So there's this huge gap, you know, in that case, you know, basically a, a 50, you know, or excuse me, 45 degree gap um, that could actually cause a significant problem for them because they have so much range of motion they can't control. And that's where most injuries occur in the throwing delivery, right? Extreme layback. Um, there's a lot of valgus stress at the elbow and there's that peel back mechanism taking place at the shoulder. So you basically need to, to be mindful of identifying where passive range of motion far exceeds active range of motion. And just as importantly, you need to have some training initiatives that help to build control in those passive range of motion, um, you know, in order to close that gap. So those are the big five to recap, think upstream, look for things that don't make sense. Try to relate things that you see in assessment, you know, directly to their athletic endeavors to create context and buy-in chase dysfunctional, non-painful patterns first and find and address areas where passive range of motion far exceeds active range of motion. As a friendly reminder, this episode is brought to you by Proteus Motion. 
Proteus is resistance training is known as 3D resistance, and it's revolutionizing the way that we can train athletes in a variety of planes of motion, and also the way that we can test those athletes to best design programs to make them successful. We've used Proteus at Cressy Sports Performance for the past few years and collaborated them to develop the Cressy Power Test for rotational athletes. If you're working with baseball players, this is a must-have tool for making sure that you design the right kind of programs for your athletes to get them to where they want to be as quickly and safely as possible. The Proteus allows you to train various points rotationally on the force velocity curve in ways that you just can't get with medicine balls, weighted balls, weighted bats, things like that. Again, you can learn more about Proteus at ProteusMotion.com. Again, that's ProteusMotion.com, P-R-O-T-E-U-S Motion.com. For our second question, I have a really straightforward one. It says, what are the key components of a warm-up for you? I actually love this question because warm-ups are so important. Um, and, and to me, it's the ultimate differentiator, um, particularly in Major League Baseball, you know, where you're, you're obviously playing 162 games, you know, plus spring training, plus any postseason that takes place. You know, you mix in some off days here and there. And, and a good warm-up can be an absolute magnifier in the sense that players that are consistent with their routine and do them on a regular regular basis really derives so much benefit that the players who kind of just, you know, want to do the show and go really, really miss out on. So, you know, I, I break warmups down into really four different things. And, um, there was actually a great book, uh, you know, science of sports training by Kurtz back in the day that, that outlined, you know, a ton of the details that go behind, um, you know, good high quality warmups, but I think you can really base it down to four. The first thing is you, you want to transiently reduce bad tone and do some activation to ensure that you're in the appropriate alignment. So that's a, a little bit of mouthful. Let, let me kind of like define a little bit more of what it actually is to me. So, you know, we do have people that have habitual postures that may take them into the wrong positions, right? So if you're familiar with some of the Posture Restoration Institute, we know that, you know, people are inherently asymmetrical, right? They have a, a heart and a vena cava on the left side. They've got a liver on the right side. They've got three lobes in one lung, two lobes in the other. We have a right and a left brain that do different things. We're not inherently uh, symmetrical creatures, but, you know, there are times when our asymmetry becomes excessive, um, and it can become a problem for folks. And, and certainly baseball is a place that can exacerbate that asymmetry because, you know, we see a lot of right-handed people living in right-handed worlds, um, playing right-hand dominant sports. So what we see is a lot of really adducted right hips, low right shoulders. And what's interesting is if you take these players, um, beyond just how baseball drives them, they often tend to stand and sit in these postures, right? So the classic example of, of this individual would be like someone who's stuck in their right hip in the car and they're obviously driving with their right foot and then their left knee is kind of uh, leaning against the door. So you have a position of abduction and external rotation on that left side while the right hip tends to be heavily adducted. Usually their right elbow is on the center console. So they're kind of leaning into a low right shoulder position and really compressing the right side of their torso. So they're very tugged down with the rib cage towards their pelvis. So they carry some bad tone in the wrong places, right? In this case, it would be right adductor and the right quadratus and the right latissimus. Um, and, you know, there's some compensatory movements that take place throughout the body as they kind of helicopter to make things work in order to run straight, maintain a line of sight. So they have to do it via different means. So some of these individuals are going to need some like just low key soft tissue work, repositioning exercises that help them to reduce their bad tone 
and, and get some muscles turned on just to make them, you know, get to a better position. And in our previous Q&A, you know, I talked about this concept of posterior pelvic tilt having a really, really good trickle down effect. And, you know, it fits right into this discussion as well as we want to try to get athletes back into a more neutral alignment. What this does not mean though, is that you need to spend, you know, 15 minutes on the ground doing a bunch of positional breathing. Don't get me wrong. We do that stuff, but it's usually one to three exercises that they can get in over the course of a couple minutes just to kind of get their alignment back to where we need to go. So, you know, what I would tell athletes is, you know, figure out where your limitations, you know, tend to be, right? Do you have one or two range of motion numbers that aren't awesome, but with the right repositioning strategies, you can get them back to where they need to be. And then you go and you train. So, you know, my feeling has always been if you, you know, get yourself to neutral, you warm up in neutral, you create some, some stabilization exercises there and you go train in neutral, you know, you should be in neutral when you walk out and you you do your best to kind of, um, you know, bring yourself back to center over the course of time with some chronic training adjustments. And the second thing is you want to raise body temperature. Once you've actually gotten yourself into a kind of a good position um, from an alignment standpoint, you want to actually perform exercise that gets your, your temperature up. And it's not uncommon for me to see, you know, athletes, you know, who just aren't even sweating by the end of their warm-up. And I think that's a big mistake. Um, we do know that, you know, body temperature elevation is, is really, really impactful for a number of different systems. Um, and I think, you know, there's some anecdotal evidence. I think we hear about this a lot in the track and field community that some of the people with the worst tissue density of the people that don't warm up thoroughly and and really try to push through things before the body is actually ready for them. Um, You know, the third part of, you know, creating, uh, you know, good warm up is that you want to establish learning and reaffirmation opportunities, right? So, you know, we've done some ground-based stuff, we've gotten up, we've moved them around um, to both establish joint range of motion and stabilization patterns, but also raise body temperature. Then we want to actually put them into positions and some loads and velocities that create learning and and opportunities for reaffirmation of of patterns that we feel are really important. So examples for this would be like stuff with the aqua bag, you know, we might do some hip airplanes where they're actually working on, you know, basically transitioning, you know, in and out of hip internal rotation to simulate what happens on the front hip and their delivery. Um, This may be stuff like throwing medicine balls where we actually are, you know, simulating some of the velocities that take place. I've seen more and more athletes over the years that like to just do like a, a set of rotational and a set of overhead medicine ball stuff at the end of their warmups just to kind of prepare them, you know, before they go pick up a baseball. So we want to really make sure that, you know, we start to get a little bit more specific at this point in time. And then ultimately, obviously, like actually picking up the movement in question and gradually um, building intensity is, is really, really important, um, you know, to, to obviously establish learning, work on the things you need to work on. You know, a pitcher going through their pregame bullpen is obviously a great example of it. They all know some of the pitches that are hardest for them to execute. So they want to go through some of those patterns during the warm up to make sure they're confident before they go and compete. And then I think the fourth point of, you know, the key components of a good warm-up, it's, it's regulation of emotional states. Um, you know, what you want the warm-up to do is to separate an athlete from everything else that's going on in the world. And, and one thing that I think is an interesting discussion in this world is this, the concept of headphones, right? You'll see some athletes that like to throw headphones in during their warm-up, you know, even while they play catch, they, you know, they, they use it as an opportunity to, you know, not just listen to music that they have, but also to tune out the outside world. But we also know that there are athletes that throw in headphones and they're getting like Snapchat updates and, you know, Instagram messages and things like that. And they, they can't possibly do it without running back to their phone. There's an athlete that has not regulated their emotional state, you know, well. Um, in fact, there was some, some interesting research that just came out recently that showed that checking social media before a workout actually reduced performance. So I think you need to be really mindful of, of what an athlete does during their warm up. Um, when it comes to actually regulating that emotional state, how do we transition from rest to exercise? 
and tune out the uh, distractions. So big picture, um, you know, we come into warm up, we want to transit, reduce some bad tone, you know, do some activation stuff and work to ensure some appropriate alignment for that athlete. Once we've done that, we want to raise body temperature while exposing them to, you know, some significant joint excursions. Um, and then, you know, third, we want to create learning and reaffirmation opportunities. Then we want to make things more skill specific, start to attack the, the ranges and the velocities that they really get. Um, during their athletic participation and above all else we want to really work hard to regulate their emotional states get them adjusted to the, the environment in which that you know they're going to be training hard or competing um, so that we can separate an athlete from everything else that's going on in the world for our third question someone asked i've heard you refer to thoracic outlet syndrome as a diagnosis of exclusion can you please elaborate on what that means um, for those of you who don't know, uh, thoracic outlet syndrome has something that's, you know, been a, a great interest of mine over the last couple of years. We've seen quite a few players over the years who have come our way who have either had it and, you know, with a surgical intervention or conservative treatment or people who have come to us with, you know, symptoms that didn't add up for a collection of different reasons. Um, and so it actually, you know, led to, you know, a resource that I created in conjunction with the Fascia Training Academy. So definitely check that out if you haven't already. It was released earlier this year. Um, um, but, you know, I, I think the big takeaway from this is most of the time people who have thoracic outlet syndrome diagnosed have actually had a collection of different diagnoses previously. There isn't one slam dunk, um, you know, kind of diagnostic imaging that you can use to diagnose thoracic outlet syndrome. A lot of times people, you know, pass nerve conduction tests. Even some of the pulse readings that they may do are a little bit trickier. Um, so usually it comes about because they've gone through a collection of, you know, failed rehabilitation attempts and, you know, some newer diagnostic measures are paired alongside with an honest conversation with a, you know, a sports medicine professional really understands these particular presentations. Probably the best way to illustrate it is just to talk about what happens if you have some numbness and tingling into your, you know, your pinky and your ring fingers, which is, you know, kind of your, your classic ulnar nerve distribution. Uh, what a lot of people don't realize is that your, your ulnar nerve actually originates all the way up on your brachial plexus, which runs from C5 to T1 on your, on your spine. And then as those nerves come off of your spine, they go right between your anterior and your middle scalenes, which is one place where they could, you know, potentially be, you know, obstructed. Um, you know, whether that's because that tissue is hypertrophied, whether it's because, um, you know, there may be some congenital predispositions to kind of like a narrower space there. But after they come off that, they go directly underneath your clavicle and above your first rib. So if you have someone who sits in a really heavy scapular depression, that clavicle might sit really, really low. Um, if you have someone who doesn't have great serratus anterior function and, and has some aberrant breathing patterns, um, those first two ribs might elevate a little bit more than they probably should. So there's a small space there. And as those nerves run more laterally, if you have a really aggressive scapular anterior tilt, and there's a place where those nerves can get pinched underneath your coracoid process as your pec minor and your coracobrachialis and the short head of your biceps come off. Then at the front of your shoulder, um, you know, kind of, uh, you know, if you don't have really good humeral head control during the layback phase of throwing, the humeral head can really glide forward and, and irritate, uh, you know, some of those nerve and vascular structures. And then certainly the nerves kind of go in all different directions as they get to the upper arm where the, you know, the ulnar nerve will run alongside the medial triceps, you know, go into the cubital tunnel where it can be, you know, mechanically impinged. It'll go, you know, through the, uh, the ulnar groove. So you can have people that subluxate, you know, in and out as they go through flexion extension, it goes directly into the flexor carpe ulnaris, which is, you know, a really prominent forearm muscle that, you know, plays some key roles in resisting valgus stress during the layback phase of throwing. And then certainly it works its way, you know, down to the wrist and into the hand to, to, you know, kind of innervate those two fingers. But what it speaks to is when you have this really distal symptom like that, 
there are a lot of different places that that nerve can be snagged. And we know that nerves don't like to be compressed. They don't like to be stretched. So a lot of times you have those symptoms really, really distally and you have to backtrack your way up and figure out where it is that things are you know, potentially obstructed. So sometimes they do some soft tissue work on a forearm and it magically gets better. Maybe it's you know, along the triceps, maybe it's on the subscapularis or the pec minor or subclavius or wherever it may be all the way up to scalenes. But the point is just that, you know, there are times when you, you check all those boxes and for some reason people's symptoms don't get better and you have to start looking more proximally. And that's where you start to look at, you know, a true thoracic outlet syndrome where, you know, the, the more problematic issues take place, you know, really, really close to the neck. Um, building on that though is you will have, you know, certain people whose symptoms jump around from day to day. You know, some of the thoracic outlet syndrome people I've seen over the years, they've been anterior shoulder pain. Um, you know, they've, they've dealt with some medial elbow type dysfunction. They've always, you know, complained of stiff necks, things like that. You know, kind of like that, that first rib that wants to pop. Um, and we usually actually had one player, uh, that, that stands out at me in particular is that, you know, he, he actually had a thoracic outlet surgery. And he, he came back a couple months later and he, he said, I didn't even realize that I couldn't open my hand all the way for the last couple of years is, you know, he'd always had anterior shoulder discomfort and things like that. And kind of like a, almost like a loss of feeling for where his arm was in space. Um, you know, and sure enough, you know, this was something that he didn't realize he'd forgotten what it felt like to feel good. Um, you know, actually be able to open his hand up to pitch. So I think that was a really, really telling thing for me is that sometimes, sometimes the, the diagnosis of exclusion doesn't even include, you know, things that they were, they were unable to really recognize were actually, you know, kind of functional deficits. So, you know, big picture, you have, you know, thoracic outlet syndrome that may have a nerve impact and you have some that may have a vascular impact. You know, certainly on the vascular side of things, things can be deadly when we're talking about blood clots and anytime you see shortness of breath, um, discoloration, swelling in the arm, you know, those are, those are huge red flags. You know, more often than not, we see a more kind of gradual onset of a collection of different, um, symptoms. And that's why these things are so hard to really diagnose. There's not a ton of specialists out there that really hone in on this stuff. You know, two big names are, are Pearl and Dallas and Thompson in St. Louis and kind of today's uh, sports medicine world. But I do see this as becoming something that's, you know, probably going to be more common as a specialty um, the orthopedic community just because it is becoming more and more prevalent as we're more familiar with it. And, and also just that, you know, players are throwing, you know, harder um, at a younger age, you know, than ever before. So I do, you know, unfortunately think that this is going to be a diagnosis that becomes more common, but that speaks to why, you know, it's a diagnosis of exclusion. It's a tough one, um, often gets mistaken for shoulder issues or elbow issues. In reality, it's more of a, a proximal origin. If you're interested in learning more, uh, definitely check out uh, my thoracic outlet course in conjunction, uh, you know, with the fascia training and academy. Um, it was something that was really, um, you know, kind of a popular resource for a collection of, of different people from the sports medicine world and the lay population. If you go to fasciatrainingacademy.com backslash product backslash thoracic dash outlet dash syndrome dash course, um, you can find that and check it out. I think you'll really, really benefit. For our fourth and final question of this installment, it's a little bit of a long one, but I do think it's a really um, important one that we cover and it's actually particularly timely. Um, it starts off with several weeks ago, I was flipping through the channels and came across the 13 or 14 U national championship slash tournament slash showcase. I honestly can't remember which of the ones it was. I know your views on showcases, but what caught my eye was the 13 or 14 year old pitching that was topping out at 91 miles per hour. The old me would have said, that's awesome, and this kid has a bright future. However, the current me thought, this kid's headed for Tommy John surgery because his body can't handle those stresses long-term at this age. My question is, what is your initial thought when you see a young kid exhibiting such high velocities at young ages? 
And, and my response very, very simply is that if you give a kid a Ferrari right when he gets his license, it could very well work out okay. If he's a very responsible kid, he has responsible parents, he has the right driver's education approach, he has the right guardrail set up in his life to actually manage things. Unfortunately, that's very rarely the case um, when we see young kids who are really, really good. What more often than not happens is that they wind up with parents or coaches or whoever else in their life that really likes to uh, to showcase that ability. Um, so rather than actually train to prepare for having it, they like to show it off. And that's a recipe for absolute disaster. And this is actually timely. I'm, I'm recording this podcast on, on January 16th, and I actually just came across the collection of tweets that were calling out a collection of, of kind of travel ball programs for their insane pitch counts and young kids during... Um, Martin Luther King Jr. weekend tournaments, um, which to me is is absolutely mind-boggling that we're, we're talking about tournaments in the middle of January where no one, regardless of where they are nationwide, is prepared to throw competitively. You know, there's not a single high school season that's actually um, in season, but it's a money-making event for a collection of these, these showcase companies. So um, kind of just a really sad state of affairs. You know, the real challenge with this it is not just that, yes, 91 miles per hour for a young kid who's skeletally mature um, is definitely, you know, flirting with disaster. We know um, the valgus stresses that take place at the elbow are, are pretty significant. And at that age, also, you're, you're not just talking about, you know, UCL injury risk. You're actually talking just as much about growth plate injuries at both the elbow and the shoulder. So there's a collection of different issues that come with this stuff. Um, but I, I think the, you know, the bigger issue is not just the, the crazy forces that are taking place. It's, it's the developments being pushed out in that timeline. I'm a big believer in this, this concept of delayed transmutation is that in each calendar, you know, we should build a collection of, of broad kind of motor potential. These, these general athletic qualities of strength, power, you know, the ability to change direction, the ability to adjust to, you know, the, the lack of predictability that takes place in typical sports. So we, we do that in a training context for baseball players, largely, you know, in August, September, October, we have a chance to really build the general athlete. You know, if we're talking about a kid that's going to only specialize in baseball, and I don't like that idea, but, you know, we can do that in a weight room over the course of time. Then we do a gradual ramp up starting in November where they're building their throwing program out and, and gradually building up intensity. They're actually honing in their mechanics. They're working on a collection of different things. Maybe it's pitch design, whatever it may be, so that they can build up for whenever their high school season starts. And that may be you know, February in, in warm weather climates, it may be March, you know, in, in northern climates when they're still shoveling snow off the fields. But the point is that there's a gradual on-ramp that doesn't just give them a chance to get their arms in shape and gradually build, you know, kind of a chronic workload where they, they, they slowly acclimate to more and more stress. But on top of that, what they're actually doing, it's, it's probably even more important is that they're, they're having time to take a lot of the general motor potential, a lot of the, the massive strength, you know, qualities they built, whether it's, you know, the foundation of strength and stability or some more of the actual, you know, power development, the endurance, all these different capabilities they develop over the course of time. It gives them a, a runway to transform them into, you know, true specific motor potential. So in other words, this, this delayed transmutation is, is effectively a way of saying, Hey, let's take what we did in the weight room 
and with our sprint and agility sessions, what we did by playing basketball and stuff. And we're going to take all those broad qualities and we're going to learn how to apply them to the specific realm of baseball. And the problem is that it's really hard to do that in a crazy competitive landscape. Um, you know, particularly when, you know, you throw an athlete on the mound in a, in a highly competitive environment and, you know, they're not necessarily conditioned to do it. They kind of go into panic mode right away. So this model of just go out and, and play in these tournaments at times when you're not ready for it, you know, it might work in other sports. Like, you know, you're not going to see a bunch of basketball players and soccer players necessarily blow out ACLs in these tournaments, but you will see a markedly higher injury rate in, in the baseball world simply because throwing a baseball is the single fastest motion in, in all sports. So, you know, all that said, you know, big picture for me is what's your initial thought when you see a young kid exhibiting such high velocities at young age? It absolutely can work out. I've seen kids where it has worked out. You know, we have 14 year olds that trained with us that, you know, I think we have five of them that are in the big leagues that were with us at age 14 because they were really responsible. They managed innings. They had a, a clear outlook on, on long-term development and how to plan their competitive calendar. And we really mentored them heavily in this regard. More often than not, though, that 13-year-old is a kid that's going to get overused. He's going to pitch way too much, um, you know, for probably all the wrong reasons and at all the wrong times. Um, and we're not going to necessarily be looking at a long-term development model. Instead, we're going to be looking at a, you know, a kid that unfortunately has a, a short runway. So, um, you know, I do think there's something to be said about just you know, being mindful of how many late bloomers there are in the big leagues. Um, you know, they're not just late bloomers because they might played multiple sports, although it, that probably contributes to it a little bit. I think they're late bloomers, you know, because it was a, it was a protective adaptation that gave them a time to, you know, focus on some more important qualities. And then their velocity started to surge when they were 17, 18. Um, I, I can't tell you how many of our, you know, our, our professional baseball players were guys that, you know, weren't even drafted out of high school. And then they went to college and they really figured it out and, and things took off from there. So I think we need to be very mindful of an industry of, of not losing a lot of these really talented 13 and 14 year olds, um, to injury or, you know, even to the, the psychological burnout of, of taking it way too seriously at the age where it still should be a game. So, you know, for me, it can be done, but that doesn't mean that it, it is normally done well. Um, and I think that's a, a sad state of affairs that, you know, I do hope will change. Um, unfortunately, a lot of mid-January tournaments and kids trying to blow up radar guns and going out and throwing 110 pitches is, is not a step in the right direction. So I hope we, um, we write this ship sooner than later because, you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of the you know, the game and, you know, I want to leave it better than I found it. So, you know, a lot of my efforts, you know, over the course of my career have been heavily dedicated towards trying to, to write the ship. And, um, you know, I, I do hope that we get this thing moving in the right direction.